And I invite you to return with me to the 22nd chapter of Acts, where we'll pick up where we left off at the 22nd verse of the 22nd chapter of Acts. May I remind you uh, that uh, Paul is at this time where we find him here in Jerusalem. Despite many warnings, despite the pleadings that he had received from prophets and loved ones, the warnings of the fate that awaited him in Jerusalem, Paul, following the example of his Savior, went there even if necessary to die for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church whom he loved. And God grant us the same love for her as well, for his church. Well, it turns out he was not to die, at least not right away, or even in Jerusalem for that matter, but the prophecy does come true. Agabus had said that uh, he would be bound there, and sure enough, he is. We will never see Paul again in the book of Acts without Rome's chains on him, and indeed, he did almost die there three times. The uh, first time he nearly died, we saw a couple of weeks ago, was at the hands of an angry mob at the temple. Had it not been for the quick thinking and actions of the Romans who sent soldiers to pluck and literally carry him out of that vicious crowd to safety, Paul would have succumbed to their riotous beatings. But the Romans want to know just what this new prisoner of theirs might be guilty of. Why was the mob beating him and What will it take to restore order to this Palestinian town under Roman rule? In our text today, two attempts are made by the commander, Lysias, to get to the bottom of those questions, especially the first, Paul's guilt. What has he done? Neither attempt works out so well for the tribune nor for Paul, who is brought both times right, as it were, to the brink of death, or at least to the risk of bodily injury, and back again. And it is in Paul's response to these that we learn something for ourselves today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to learn, and we want to be formed and molded and shaped by your word. So may it be your voice, and not the voice of Uh, of a man that we hear now. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul has just been addressing, let me give you just a little bit of background. Paul has just been addressing the crowd that had been hushed to hear him speaking to them in Aramaic. And then he uses this word, Gentiles, telling them that it was his God-given calling to bring the gospel to them. He says, Gentiles. Verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why They were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, 
Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council... Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law? You order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. One of the most challenging pieces of instruction that ever passed our Lord's lips to us must certainly be this simple, yet, simple sounding, yet often confounding pair of hortatory similes, these two commands in the form of similes or word pictures. Remember when Jesus said it? Be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. 
Like so many things in the Christian life that we hold and that, are, that hold us in, in tension, in constant tension, to put these two together in our, uh, in our faith and in our lives and in our ethics and in our behavior puts us to the test. The difficulty of, of holding such a life, living such a life, holding to both, completely to both, at one and the same time, and living both, is illustrated for us here in spades in Paul's interactions with both the Romans and the Jews in Jerusalem. And from watching him, we may learn for ourselves some very important lessons about living the best of the serpent and the best of the dove. For this morning, we'll take up only the first. Living shrewdly, living wisely. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come back to the other side of that equation. For now, wise as serpents. Paul was here in a couple of ways. Paul demonstrated shrewdness par excellence in his dealings with the Romans and the Jews. First with the Romans. The Romans were masters at extracting information by inflicting pain. Their favorite means for accomplishing that task seems to have been the whip. For the purpose of loosening recalcitrant lips, the Romans would strip a person and stretch his arms around a pole and fasten his hands on the opposite side and thus expose the maximum area of backside and then with a whip made of leather straps embedded these straps with sharp bits of bone and rough pieces of metal attached to a stout wooden handle they would subject their victim to a ghastly ordeal I could tell you the details of the damage that was inflicted, but I hardly think I need to describe them to you as a powerful Roman soldier wielded that whip. You'll understand, I think, when I tell you simply this, that, that oftentimes scourging ended in death. And when it didn't end in death, it ended with uh, a life of being crippled. So they had just stretched Paul out and were about to begin their interrogation when Paul asked a simple question that brought the whole matter to a screeching halt. Is it lawful for you to flog a man, a a Roman citizen, and uncondemned? Of course, he knew the answer. It was a rhetorical question that sent the centurion scurrying immediately to Lysias, the tribune, to ask, what are you about to do? This is a Roman citizen on our hands here. The news struck fear immediately into the tribune's heart because of what he was about to do and because of what he'd already done, let alone scourging him. Even binding a Roman citizen was illegal and could have potentially cost him not only his rank, but his career as a Roman soldier. Paul understood all of that, and he uses it here to his advantage to avoid a needless beating. Why? Is it because Paul's a coward? 
Because Paul's afraid of pain? No. It's because Paul is clever. Or to stick with the simile, he was shrewd. He was shrewd, wise as a serpent. Paul was not afraid of beatings, obviously not. He'd been whipped, he'd been beaten, he'd been stoned. And all of it willingly for the sake of the kingdom. He underwent these things. Had this scourging clearly been something that would serve the kingdom of God, Paul would not only have undergone it, he would have embraced it as suffering for Christ. But he was no masochist. He didn't undergo pain for the sake of undergoing pain. No Christian needs to undergo or should even seek to undergo needless suffering. That would be silly. And what is more, Paul was also a man not given to giving his enemies and the enemies of the gospel an advantage that he was in a position to deprive them. And that's exactly what he did here. Now notice how wisely Paul uses it to the advantage of the kingdom of God at this point. He made no reference to his Roman citizenship in his speech to the Jews. Not a, nary a word about being a Roman citizen. Why not? Because it wouldn't have helped in that situation. But when it came to preventing a needless beating, a beating that the Jews, by the way, sorely wanted to see Paul undergo, he pulls it last minute from his bag. Shrewd. He also acts shrewdly, secondly, with the Jews. Look at him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. That's what the Sanhedrin is. It's the gathering of the Jewish leaders who had been convened, by the way, by order of Rome, by the Roman tribune's order, in a further attempt on the tribune's part to discern what in the world is the problem here between Paul and the Jewish leaders that caused him now to have this unwanted prisoner lately revealed to be a Roman citizen on his hands. Cleverly, Paul rescues himself from the hands of the Sanhedrin by setting the Pharisees and the Sadducees at odds with each other, introducing the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. See, these two ruling parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees represented in the Sanhedrin, they disagreed bitterly over the resurrection. The Pharisees, what you might call, for lack of better terms, the theological conservatives, they believed in the resurrection of the dead and angels and spirits, the supernatural. The Sadducees did not. They were the naturalists of the day, you might call them, or maybe, so to speak, the theological liberals. They denied the resurrection. Paul, in this matter of the resurrection, found himself in agreement with the Pharisees. Of course he did, and so he used that argument to his own advantage. He didn't agree with the Pharisees on everything. We know that. You know enough about the Pharisees and about Paul to know they didn't agree at every point, certainly not on matters of the application of the law, and particularly with regard to salvation. But when it came to resurrection, he and the Pharisees on the same page. It's almost jarring for us to hear him say it, isn't it? He says, I am a Pharisee. 
It's amazing to hear Paul say this, but he goes on, it's with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial here. The result, of course, as he anticipated, was that the Sanhedrin melted down into arguments, not about Paul, but about the resurrection. And as a result, Paul successfully averted a situation that would otherwise would have been, to put it mildly, poor uh, for his health, his well-being, and for the kingdom as well. Now, there are those, I will tell you, who are vehemently in disagreement with Paul's actions here. I read one commentator who said that this, this action by Paul, this was unworthy of Paul to act in such an unscrupulous manner. A dirty trick Paul played to divide the assembly this way, is what this commentator called it. But let me assure you that it was neither unscrupulous nor dirty. It was shrewd. It was just plain wise. It was a Christian thinking, thinking carefully and employing tactics in a calculating way that is not only not to be condemned, but actually to be commended and commended for us to employ this kind of wisdom. The scripture all over the place gives us examples of saints commended for employing this kind of wisdom. The Hebrew midwives, remember them? Who spared the Hebrew babies instead of killing them and used as their excuse, well, the Hebrew women, you know, they give birth so fast. (laughs) What are we going to do? We get here and they're born already. Rahab hides the spies in her roof instead of surrendering them to their enemies. Samuel tells Saul, oh, I've, uh, I've come to offer sacrifices, that's why I'm here. When, of course, he was there to what? Anoint David, Saul's replacement. Church history supplies us with examples of this, too. Maybe you've seen the... The film, A Man for All Seasons. If so, you remember Thomas More, pressed to swear an oath of loyalty to King Henry VIII. Doing so would have amounted to approving his break with the Roman Church. He refused to swear. Instead, More remained silent. Now, he didn't say he was refusing. He just refused to say. And in English Common law, silence, implied consent. And therefore, if one were to draw a conclusion according to the law, he would have to conclude that more consented. Everyone knew, of course, that his silence meant disagreement. But by his silence, more both avoided telling a lie and exposing himself to punishment. Shrewd as a serpent. Maybe you've heard the testimony of our own missionary to Peru, Jerry Gutierrez, how he became a Christian. A hard-boiled young Marxist, a friend and confidant of a man who founded the Shining Path, the Maoist 
terrorist organization that blighted the life of Peru for 20 years, Gutierrez became a Christian. Jerry says he became a Christian because he was set up. Was a setup by Christians who knew him. They went to great lengths to undermine his suspicion of Christianity and to commend the gospel to him. On one occasion, after Jerry had taken refuge with him after a violent demonstration against the government that he had organized and led, a mission to the world missionary spirited Jerry through a police roadblock, hiding him under a blanket on the floor in the back seat of his car. The missionary would have been in real trouble had he been caught aiding and abetting a fugitive. Or Jerry would be invited to someone's home and arrive there and find that everyone else had arrived there too, all for the singular purpose of talking to Jerry about Jesus. That was shrewd. The kind of shrewdness that Paul exercised the kind of resourceful enterprise that we, we need to learn to exercise for the kingdom of God too. You see, forethought and thoughtfulness and foresight and canniness, these are as surely Christian virtues as love, and patience, and generosity. Paul used his wits, and God used his wits, Paul's wits, too. And in so doing, he encourages us to use our resources of cleverness, of intelligence, of shrewdness, so long as we use them in faithfulness to God. Amen.